0: Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of This Would Know, better known as The Revenge of the Sut. I've taken back control of the reins of this giant wooden clown car, and uh, I have <laughs> Daniel Kemper here across from me. Daniel is an actor who has played roles from Shakespeare to Andrew Lloyd Webber. He's a singer a self-taught chess player who's been head coach to several nationally ranked elementary school chess teams, an NYC trivia bar champion with a questionably large knowledge base of both the Star Wars and Game of Thrones universes, and the master of casting and company management for a little Queens-based theater company called the Rude Grooms. Please welcome for the first ever time to the Revenge of the Sut Pod,
1: Daniel Kemper. Hi Daniel, how are you? Hi, everybody. I just want to apologize in advance. That bio that Monty put together makes me sound way more interesting than I actually am, but here we go. Well, I pulled it from your website, man, so at least at some point you thought you were that interesting. My website makes me sound way more interesting than I actually am, too, so that's In all fine. fairness, I think
0: that's literally the point of a website. I think <laughs> if you look it up in the dictionary, it is a an internet device to make one
1: sound more interesting than they are. Yes. An internet tool for self-aggrandizement, that's indeed.
0: Right. So, um... Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be going through. If you have questions that pop up for you uh, and you're watching on the YouTube live stream, please pop them in and I will pose them to Daniel. Uh, we are going to bombast him with all of our fantastic questions. There's a little bit of a slant rhyme. Not really. I was trying. Whatever.
1: Wait, um, where was it? Where was the slant?
0: Bombast to fantast. It was an internal. Oh, you know. okay. There we go. Um, but as we go, I'm going to start us off. Um... And if you're not on the YouTube live stream and you're just listening to this podcast, well, you're a couple weeks late and you didn't get to ask your questions. You can't even see Daniel's facial expression right now. He's very disappointed in you.
1: It's it's, it's disappointment and then a little mix of like, I'm sad for you because you you missed out. That's that's disappointing. I'm upset. I kind of want to check on you now in the future to find out like how you're doing. Are you okay? How are you coping with that missed opportunity? Well, So speaking
0: of being disappointed and sad... The first Mm. question I have for you is one that I'm lobbing right back from from your full frontal assault on me last week. Yes. Why are you the way you are?
1: Oh, Lord. Uh, That is a mix of reckless optimism and what people would call back home (laughs) hard-headedness. I generally have grown up and sort of shaped my worldview around the idea that everything is figure outable, that there is no problem that does not also have a solution to it. And my thinking has also been shaped by the idea. It's like, no, you can, you can do pretty much anything as long as you set your mind to it and focus and really try to put the steps forward to make it happen. And of course that like That umbrella idea is much, much wider when you're younger. The older you get, the more you realize like you can do anything that you put your mind to and have a reasonable plan of action to accomplish or like you can do anything you set your mind to and that you are willing to put the work in for and certain things require more work than others. And so at a certain point, you have to decide if the thing you want to do is actually worth it to pursue but generally it's a combination of like reckless optimism and hard-headedness that explains my life and all of my choices
0: <laughs> so on that bouncing off that idea of everything is figure outable have you developed like a like a baseline problem-solving methodology that you use if you're like this shit's crazy i know i'm gonna start by a
1: yeah So what I generally tend to do is I will either do one of two things. I generally lean toward starting at the end because if I know in my mind what the end result looks like, then I can sort of work backwards and figure out a way to begin. So I know that if I want to end up over here at point C, that means that Thing B has to happen, and thing B can't happen unless I do object A over here. Or if it's something that is just a ton of black boxes, then I will just try to do one simple thing first. It's like, okay, just do this. You know that this thing has to happen, so just do that to start with. And the starting of it will then move you forward to get to where you need to go. Cool
0: yeah so then on that on that question i mean this we'll, we'll get more into the the artsy fartsy stuff later but with with all of that with starting at the end doing little chunks and then particularly the idea of just putting in the work do you do you believe in talent yes as yes a se- as something separate from hard work hundred percent yes so then as a problem solver Mm -hmm. If you weren't talented at something, but you wanted to achieve it,
1: uh, how would that complicate that situation for you? It just means that you have to work harder than somebody who has a natural affinity for it. For example, uh, my day job as a chess teacher, I'm surrounded by teachers, I'm surrounded by educators who have a greater affinity for teaching than I do. They are just they are naturally more gifted teachers than I am. I also am around other chess teachers who are more naturally gifted players than I am. There are certain parts of understanding it that they just have a natural affinity to. Mm. Um through no through no fault or grace of their own, it's just something that for them it makes sense in their brain in a way that I just have to work at. And so I know that for me there are some steps and not just teaching and not just in chess, but in other things, even uh theater and artistically related. There are some things that come naturally to other people that I know for myself I don't have that particular skill set. So I have to divert more focus and energy into making sure that I can pick up the pick up the slack in my own brain. Or like or even in some cases in my own body. And so, how
0: do you? How are you able to clock in yourself those areas where you don't have the same natural affinity or or talent or whatever you want to call it, and that you have to put that extra time and focus into?
1: So again, it's sort of the same thing of figuring out little steps that you can take or little milestones. For example, I'm not the most gifted dancer that's ever existed. Um, I beg to I beg to differ, but. <laughs> It's a a thing that doesn't really come natural to me. Like learning choreography has always artistically been a thing that is very difficult for me. Like you take our master of movement, Bridget Bowes, you give her like a 16 count of choreography. You show it to her once. Maybe you need to show it to her twice, but she's got it down. Yeah, you definitely don't need to show it to her twice. Yeah, you don't need to show it to her twice. For me, you show me a 16 count bit of choreography and I'm going to need to walk through it literally step by step, count by count, And then once I have all of the individual movements, I can then start chaining together phrases. Like maybe once I have all of the individual movements, then I can start to connect the first four counts. And then once I have the first four counts, I'll move on to like chunking out the next eight and then so on and so on and then figuring out how they move together. But I know for me, because I'm not naturally talented as a mover, those are sort of the steps that I have to take to do a little bit more to make sure that I'm... At least competent in that area.
0: So I, I want to go back to the beginning of this question, but first I want to uh, investigate that further. So when you're when you're in that situation, you're doing something that you don't feel as inclined towards as talented at. Whatever, whatever. Uh, dancing, for example. Do you does that challenge become? equally pleasurable for doing something that you do have a natural affinity for like acting or is it more pleasurable because you're achieving something that is unexpected or is it less pleasurable because it because of the effort required
1: it's initially less pleasurable because i don't like i generally find situations where i feel lost or adrift as like as uncomfortable and not in a, and not in a challenging way as like, Oh, this is going to make me stronger at this or better at that. It makes me feel uncomfortable in a way of like, I don't know what's going on. Mm. And I just, I'm a person who likes to know. I like to be able to know. I like to be able to have my bearings. And so to feel completely adrift is not a, is not a thing that I'm, that I'm in, inclined to sit in for a little while. And what was the second part of the question?
0: Uh, I hadn't asked the second part yet. So the second part oh, yet okay. is kind of bringing us back. Um, with that, with what with what you believe as a, that the uh, talent exists, but there's a gap there that can be bridged or at least caught up to with, with additional labor and additional effort and work. Do you think that there? is is this, is that bridge or is that gap fully bridgeable or is there are there some things that if you're just not talented at you can put in all the work you can get fine but you won't ever pass a certain place
1: i tend to think that that really comes down to the individual i think that answer comes down to the individual because if you take if you take somebody who is naturally talented but not necessarily a hard worker and you take somebody who doesn't have a natural talent but is going to work harder then i think you can get to a point where those two are are on par or maybe even the second person eventually begins to surpass but i think if you take somebody who does have a natural talent and is willing to put in the work to better their craft i think that eventually on a long enough timeline that person or that individual is just going to get to a point where they become singular in their field. And you can look at this mm. in almost all aspects of, of art and entertainment or even through all walks of life. It's the reason that Michael Phelps is such a prolific, is such a prolific swimmer. You know what I mean? Because not only does he work hard at it, but he's also naturally gifted as well. You look at like why Michael Jordan is such an iconic basketball player. And Michael Jordan obviously was naturally talented at it, but he also works incredibly hard. You look at the people who are at the very, very top of their field, and it seems like they are something like a phenomenon. I think that is what happens when you get to the combination of natural talent And hard work and dedication to the craft. But I think that those, I think that those examples are very rare, which is why we highlight them so much. But in general, in general, I think it really does come down to the individual. There's a metaphor from the West Wing that I really like that answers this question. Um, it's a conversation between the vice president and his eventual chief of staff, where he asks him, if you've got two guys on a baseball team, two guys running from home plate to first base, one guy has perfect form and the other guy has lousy form, but they both make it there at the same time, which one do you pick? And the answer that is given is you pick the guy with lousy form because if you teach him how to do the form correctly, he eventually beats the guy. He eventually beats that first guy to that base.
0: And you literally just perfectly transitioned me into my next question, which is skipping ahead in what I had planned, but we're going there in this line of thought (laughs) right away. So, as so, A, I've so loved having you on board as casting director for Rude Grooms. It's been like that room is just a delight. even on the backside of the table, which I usually find horrifically anxiety-inducing, um, and uh, so we'll talk more about that later. But first, I want to ask: How does this apply when you're in that position? When you're when you're looking at actors, when you're the one who gets to choose um, the great form or the messy form that, it's, that get to the plate at the same time? How does that factor into your equation as a casting director?
1: So when I don't have so let me preface by saying I don't have too too much experience as a casting director I think Romeo and Juliet was probably the first really substantive at bat to go along with the baseball metaphor that I've had with casting and the big thing that I was looking for in that room I tried as much as possible to look for the people who made me forget that I was trying to cast a show I really tried to look at what people were bringing into the room and think to myself, am I watching the choices that you've made? Am I watching your technique? Am I watching something that you planned out at home and said, I'm going to bring this into the room? Or am I actually watching you tell me a story? in this 1 to 2 minutes that you're that you're bringing in of a monologue or the prepared sides am i sitting here in my capacity as a casting director or am i watching you as an audience member would am i actually listening to you because i'm watching you ask the questions so i think what i really look for is somebody who makes me forget that they are acting and is doing what we were taught to do on the first day of acting school. Who's really telling the truth of an imagined circumstance?
0: With that, to dive deeper into... because re- I'm really interested in how your brain functions with regards to this idea of like, there is talent, but there is also work ethic, and there is this negotiation between the two. So maybe mm-hmm. then the better question to ask is when we're... At the end of callbacks, when we've got eight Juliets, for example, all of right. whom we would love to see their Juliet in, in, in our production, but we have to pick one of them, right? Mm-hmm. And so now we have to fight with each other over which best option we get to go with. Right. So at, at that point, does this, does this mindset start to affect um, how you make those judgment calls? Or is it still just, did you tell me a story?
1: It's, yeah, it's, it's a little yes and no. So when we get to that point, when we're talking about the final round of callbacks, what I generally try to do was think of a list of character traits of the role that we were trying to fill. Like, what if I had to describe this character? In a series of adjectives or in one sentence, it's like this character is this, they are this, they are this. So it's like those are the qualities that I'm looking for in someone's interpretation. But then I also would look at, first of all, who came in prepared. Because you can tell, especially in in a callback situation, you can tell who prepared and did the work. Versus somebody What does prepared mean to you? So if you if someone has an ease with the language, if they have a clear point of view about the text that they are delivering, if there are choices that they've come in with. Like if I can tell that their interpretation of this character has a point of view and I can see very clearly how they feel. About the situation that they're in for those pages of dialogue versus somebody who is maybe coming in with a couple of choices, but you can tell that a lot of their brain power is being focused on this line's got to come here. I have to make sure that I put this word in, then, like over here, this thought leads to the next thought because it's not fully in them, it's not in their body in a way that tells me. That they can throw the lines away or that there's an understanding of the character that they have reached. They're stuck in week two of
0: rehearsal, basically.
1: Exactly. They're stuck in week two of rehearsal and I'm looking for somebody who's coming in like ready for dress rehearsal.
0: So you expect dress rehearsal at the callback?
1: Yes. And obviously it's different because at a callback at the most, you're looking at what, maybe three to four pages of dialogue? So obviously I'm not going to ask you to, I'm not going to expect you to come in with all of act one ready to go. And it's like, okay, we'll just pick out, let's pick out this scene from act one and just go off the fly from there. But it's like, if, I, if you're given a concrete finite set of pages, like if you're maybe given three or four pages with a reasonable amount of time to prepare them, it's like if I give you a week to prep four pages of dialogue for a callback giving you seven pages or seven days for four pages that's that's over a page a day like (laughs) you gotta come in ready if i'm like if you come in after a week and you're not ready with four pages of dialogue then like what are we doing you know like why are we here you're clearly not ready. So, why am I going to think if you weren't ready, if you couldn't get four pages together in time, what makes me think that you're going to be able to handle 75?
0: So, we have a, a great uh, a YouTube or a Facebook chat question on this same topic. Before we go there, it's, I just want to spit back at you what I'm hearing and tell me if this is a correct or incorrect interpretation. So, mm-hmm. what I'm hearing from that situation is at the callback level, in terms of this divide, talent, work ethic, as maybe the two poles of it, of course, that mix in infinite ways. The the vector that you mentioned of talented but doesn't do hard work doesn't make the cut and a callback
1: for you. No, they don't. So, great. Yeah. No, they don't. They really don't because, like I said, you can tell when somebody's unprepared and at that point – I don't care like it doesn't matter to me how naturally gifted you are or if you're able to like have a moment that is really strong and really beautiful Mm -hmm. in the room. If I can tell that you have not prepared, that makes I've got to think about the long timeline, especially in the way that we work where we only have 10 days of rehearsal. You know what I mean? Like, if you're not ready now with a little bit of time, with a little bit of pages and time that we've given you, if I put you in a crucible situation, mm-hmm. it's like, well, listen, this is going up in 10 days, mm-hmm. so you have to be ready. I'm just, I'm not going to feel comfortable trusting that person to be in a room where not only just me and you and the company, but like other people are counting on them to have their thing together. So I would much rather in that situation, I would much rather take the person who is a hard worker than the person who is naturally gifted but doesn't fully commit, if that makes sense.
0: Oh, that makes sense. And I think that is where to end that little bit of the convo because that's a great point to leave it on. (laughs) Uh, Chris Rockwood asks on this, um, is it sometimes simply a gut dislike for the individual, even if they're talented and hardworking but they just piss you off? Does the project always top – or – I think this is still part of the same question, Chris. Let me know if I'm wrong. Or does the project always top the personal?
1: I mean, I'm not going to – I'm not going to bring in a person to a room who's a jerk. So, yeah, it's it's like – it would be like any other job interview or it would be like a first date. Or if you're just meeting like new friends for the first time, somebody can be – smart and funny and really charming but if if someone is disrespectful if someone is rude if they're inconsiderate you got to remember like an audition an audition is essentially an interview it's essentially like here's why i think we should work together here's why or if you're an actor on the other side of it it's like here's why i think i would be a good fit for your your project, for your company, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm assuming that what you're bringing to me in the room is deliberate. I'm assuming that what you're bringing into the room is intentional. And so Mm. if you're intentionally coming into the room with like rude or disrespectful energy or just like unkind energy, like if that's what you're putting out there, then I'm going to assume that's who you are because that's who you decided to show up as that day. Like that was a choice.
0: What if what and if so, what if it's not overt behavior? What if someone does all the right things, but for mm-hmm. whatever reason, they just give you a skeevy vibe? Does that does that play into your um, your weighing of of factors at all?
1: At that point, I would sort of at that point, I'd have to take a minute to check in with myself and ask why I'm like why I'm feeling that way about the person because I don't ever want to write a person off. Just because, like, I don't know, I'm I'm getting a bad vibe at that point. I would probably want to either know or see more. And so, in that case, so I'm thinking, for example, if if we're at first round of auditions and there's somebody who gives a great audition and is very, is incredibly professional and respectful and all of the other stuff, but I just get a weird vibe, mm-hmm. that might be a situation where I. I like what they brought in, but I'm not sure. And I don't know why I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to bring them to the callback and then give them something different to work with. Mm -hmm. And then maybe that's a person who in the room, I might spend more of their audition time just having a conversation with them. Like, what did you think about the character? Tell me a little bit about your process. Trying to get to know who they are as a person Mm -hmm. and not so much time seeing or working through the dialogue or in some cases i might have them do several readings of the dialogue and then give them new notes to play with and see how they adapt to situations on the fly but i never try to write i try never to write someone off in a room just because i get a bad vibe cool yeah
0: thank you well before Mm -hmm. before we go back into the we'll come back kind of into this zone but at the other end but before we do that i want to throw out um my personal favorite question that we have so far um Ooh, okay. which is from Annie fave dessert Key lime pie I know you've already said it but I I I I messed up here Okay She and Alex when that question comes up will judge Danny be afraid Reading verbatim reading verbatim from the YouTube chat
1: I don't believe it I am reading I verbatim you can go check it
0: yourself it is I on there think Oh, thank you for understanding that we're here at Revenge of the Sut. You have filled my vengeance meter to the top.
1: I think Alex and Annie, I I think Alex and Annie would never do that to me. I think you editorialize there. I think you changed some stuff. I
0: promise you. You know what? I can screen share with you, can't I? Hold on, get ready. Sorry, audience. It's time, time. do you see this right here? Do you see this right here? Highlighting it.
1: Alex and Annie, how could you? (laughs) <laughs> How could you? <laughs> Why? Why? Uh, okay. So, key lime well, pie. Tell me key more. Key lime pie, hands down, without equivocation. Because it is the perfect balance. Uh it's the perfect balance of soft and crunchy. It is a perfect blend of sweet and tart. Okay. And I generally tend to like citrus based candy or dessert or sweet things, which I think is just a byproduct of being from Florida. Mm. But yeah, it's key lime pie without hesitation or equivocation. And anybody can fight me on that all day. I have time for that. I have time for that argument.
0: All caps, Annie just made key lime pie for her birthday
1: tomorrow. because she has good taste. Rock on, Annie.
0: Man, we really are all sitting around the communal wood now. I feel yes, so Yes,
1: indeed. I'm going to get my I'm going to go get myself
0: a slice of Key Lime Pie tomorrow and uh and eat it in celebration of you, Annie. I bet Danny will too. <laughs> Moving on from uh <laughs> from someone who I think is probably a complete stranger to you, Julian Camper. I don't know that guy. What? What got are you, you? Are we sure that's not a Russian bot? Uh, probably is a Russian bot. There's a W in the
1: middle, so it sounds like the W Bush. Yeah. Okay. Uh yep.
0: What got you into acting?
1: Oof. Um. So that's a long story, but I will try to describe it as succinctly as possible. Yeah, because we don't edit these the... episodes
0: down, so you got to self censor. Yeah.
1: The very, the very first time I remember thinking that I wanted to be an actor was in the fall of, I think, 1995, my mom was a reporter for the local CBS affiliate. And she had a Sunday segment that was about like arts and culture and all the different things that were happening around the greater Orlando area that people could go and see. And it just so happened that right around this time, the national touring company of Jesus Christ Superstar was doing a few dates in Orlando. And so she was going to go and interview a few of the company members for her Sunday segment. And she had an extra ticket to the theater. And she brought me along. I was like maybe eight years old. And the only – I had no knowledge or reference of professional theater or musicals or Broadway or anything of the sort – the only plays that I had ever seen were like children's theater things that had come to our schools. So I had no idea what we were getting into. And then I proceeded to sit there and have my eight-year-old mind melted by this two-hour Andrew Lloyd Webber rock opera. And the, um, the person playing Judas was an actor... Uh, who is no longer with us, unfortunately, the late great Carl Anderson. He was mm. actually he was Ben Vereen's understudy for the role of Judas on in Jesus Christ Superstar on Broadway. He is the Judas in the classic film version of the movie. I think he's he amazing played, in that movie. He's he's incredible, just mind blowing. And so I got to see him perform live, and not only was he an incredible performer. But it was the first time I had ever seen somebody do something like that who looked like me. Mm. I had never, I'd never seen anybody do that kind of serious theater or that kind of serious acting, whether it was TV or movies or what have you, who actually looked like me. The other big part of why it was so impactful. It's because my family, like, we grew up in church. So I had heard the story about the crucifixion and the resurrection a million times. And so being exposed to this play, which is told entirely from the perspective of Judas, who firmly believes that he is doing nothing wrong and that he, what he's doing he believes is the right thing and that the movement has gotten sidetracked, it was the first time that made me realize that there are other perspectives outside of your own, which is something that I still try to apply in the theater that I do. I think it is a an incredible medium for allowing people to look and think outside of themselves. And so we saw the play. My mom had her press pass and she had scheduled uh, some time to go and do some pre-interview stuff with some of the cast members where they were having their cast party at a bar downtown in Orlando. And so... She goes to the bar with eight year old me in tow yes and uh it was this bar in downtown orlando i don 't even know if it 's still there anymore it 's called one eyed Jacks, but so she flashes her press pass and brings her child into the bar because she 's awesome, and I got to uh I got to sit and talk with Carl Anderson after the show. As an eight-year-old? As an eight-year-old. No way. She brought him over to the table where we were sitting, and she was like, this is my son, Daniel, and he just saw you perform in the show. And he could not have been a nicer or a kinder human being. Like, I, I could not tell you to this day what he actually asked me, what we actually talked about. But I remember how I felt walking away from it. It's like that Maya Angelou quote, people will forget what you said, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And every Mm. time I think about that interaction, it just, it fills me with light. Thinking about, like, thinking about that moment. And he, we talked for, I think, what must have been maybe about 10 minutes. And then he said goodbye and then went to join the rest of the cast. And I remember very, very clearly In my eight-year-old brain, that was the first self-actualized thought, the first fully realized thought that I had in my brain where I went, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Like, that's who I want. That's what I want to be. That is what I want to do. And so from there, I was like, great. So I'm going to start doing theater stuff. I'm going to start doing school plays and I'm going to start watching movies and TV with a different lens now. And when I go to middle school, uh, is there a drama club at my middle school? No. So I'm going to start the drama club at my middle school. Is there a drama club in high school? Great. Who do I need to talk to? Um, and then sophomore year, I was like, okay, I know I want to go to school for theater. Where do I want to go to school for theater? I want to go to New York because I want to be a stage actor. So where are the best places to go to school in New York? Great. So we're going to set our eyes on NYU. And then go from there, and it all happened because of that night, that first night when I went to the theater with my mom and got to, got to meet the company and the cast afterward.
0: Well, actors, if you didn't realize why the stage door was important before, now yep. you know. Yep, that's beautiful, man. Uh, going right off that, another question I was I had on here to ask you that the really nicely into. Uh, who are some other of your artistic heroes?
1: Have there been other people who've influenced you in in as major a way? I have an affinity for, like I said, the people who tend to give performances or tell stories that make you think outside of your own perspective. Um, so somebody that comes to mind is, uh, is James Gandolfini's portrayal of Tony Soprano in The Sopranos. This idea that you can take someone who looks outwardly and behaves like a very scary and intimidating person in a lot of ways. Tony Soprano is an incredibly frightening person, but then to get to look inside that character's mind over the duration of six seasons and see that like, even though this is a frightening person, he does have fears and he does have insecurities and doubts like the rest of us. And just like the rest of us, there are only certain ways that he is allowed to express those and seeing how he deals with that whether well or not well i think was incredibly compelling i also tend to like the work that makes us aspire to be our best selves it's part of the reason that i um one of my favorite pieces of entertainment is still to this day the west wing i unabashedly love that show because it's it's this great Descript It's this great depiction that is in no way perfect, but it's a great depiction of what happens when really smart, really dedicated, really talented people all try to come together with the common good, with the common goal of making life a little bit better for other people in the capacity that they can, which is part of the reason that I think that acting is so special it's It's the kind of artist that I aspire to be. For me I was actually having a conversation with a friend of mine about this recently and I think one of the things that is so special and such a gift about acting in the theater is it is a profound way to improve the lives of other people by not only bringing community together in unlikely places but it has the it also has the the rare gift of putting people in a place where they are willingly allowing themselves to have their minds changed they are willingly they're putting them they're willingly putting themselves in a situation to have their perspective open or to maybe think about an argument or a point of view in a way that they might not have before and it is very rare that you have a medium or a venue where people will enter into that state of receptiveness or that state of openness willingly. And so I think when you have such a, like such a gift or an opportunity as that, there is a responsibility to, to do that justice, to do justice to people's time. If they're going to give you that gift, then yeah, you have a responsibility to, to, take that and appreciate it for what it is and make the most of that opportunity.
0: What is it specifically in theater that allows it uh, or invites people watching it to have that potential for a perspective change or have that potential to have a heart opened to a different point of view or to, or to, to deeply challenge a complicated and entrenched personal opinion?
1: I think that where that comes from is partly because whether or not we know it and your the degree of awareness to this depends on the person but i think whether or not we know it one thing that happens when you go to see live theater is you are witnessing a singular occurrence it's a singular occurrence in time which is make, which is what makes it different from film or television what you're watching right now when you go to the theater can only happen right now and it will never happen this way again even if you see even if you see the same show for however long it's running it is going to be different every single time that you see it the words may be the same the plot points may be the same the actors you know will be doing this like doing similar blocking but the experience or the occurrence that you are seeing is singular in that moment and i think because it's a singular instance something that has never happened before and will never happen again there's a level of reverence mm. to that 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 moment has weight but that weighty moment because we're in a theater is going to last for 2 hours. Mm. And so when when you're sitting through 2 hours of 2 hours worth of moments with that level of heft and significance, you can't help but have yourself and your thought process be open to the possibility of entertaining something new. Or something that you hadn't thought of before. Or looking at something from a different angle that you might not have thought was even there. That's Before beautiful. you walked into the room. I love that. Mm, thank you. Um, I'm, I have one more acting question. Before I do,
0: I'm going to do another audience question. And folks who are watching on YouTube or Facebook, this is probably last call for questions. We already have too, too many to ask, Daniel, all of them. Though we'll ask the rest in the Patreon post show. More about that in a sec. Uh, oh, but wait, if you I have anything all
1: these questions you want to yeah. ask,
0: well, you can look afterwards.
1: Um,
0: <laughs> but if you want to, if you have stuff you want to ask Daniel, pop it in there right now. Um, and I will, I will do at least one more audience question after this next one, or actually these next two, because they're both in the audience. Um, the first next audience question uh, is from Alex. Cats or dogs? Cats. 100% easy. No problem.
1: Yeah. Cats. Love them. Including the movie. No. (laughs) No. The movie needs to disappear forever. Great. But the animal, cats. If I wasn't allergic to cats, I would love to have a cat. Yeah. I'm allergic allergic to both cats and dogs. However, there are certain short hair or hypoallergenic dogs that are okay with me. But you would still take the pain of
0: a cat. Over a hypoallergenic dog.
1: No, I mean, if you're talking about what I would have to, what I would consider having as a pet, I would take I would take a dog that I was not allergic
0: to. You're, you're going to hang out with this animal for 17 minutes.
1: Cats. Cats. Yeah.
0: 100%. Is it masochism? Is it because it will torture you? Is that why? No,
1: it's just because they're super cool. Like, cats are super cool. All
0: right. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Back onto the acting front. Um... Uh, Anetta Wilson asks, why are who? you... Wait, Anet- I'm sorry, who?
1: Anetta Wilson. I, I don't know that I know her. Is she new? Yeah, it must be brand new, yeah. Okay. Uh, asks, why are you in love with Shakespeare? Hmm. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued by anything uh, or by anybody whose work and words are able to span entire time periods and empires and generations and last down the years. Um, Partly because it's something that as an actor, that's a big goal of mine. I'd like to be a part of or produce work that outlives me. And so there's a curiosity to me about Shakespeare and his works about why Why these things, as opposed to any others written in that period, have lasted for well over 400 years. And I think going back to the conversation that we had with Anya, there's something about Shakespeare's work that really challenges us to ask the big, big questions. And it really, there's something about Shakespeare's work that really resonates, I think, with all of us on a fundamentally human level. One of my favorite one of my favorite pieces of text from Shakespeare is the monologue that the Archbishop of York has in Henry IV part two, I believe, um, where he's talking about the the state of the kingdom. And he's trying to convince all these people to go to war. And he says, we are all diseased and by our surfeiting and wanton hours have put ourselves into a burning fever and we must bleed for it. But he... It says, I take not on me here as a physician, nor do I as an enemy to peace, troop in the throngs of military men, but rather show a while like fearful war to diet rank minds sick of happiness and purge the obstructions which begin to stop our very veins of life. That is, oh. yeah, it's beautiful, but it's, it's such this it's this impassioned and like righteous call for justice yeah it's this this idea that like we have to get out of this this sense of complacency that is slowly beginning to kill us and there's uh, he says later on in the speech We see which way the stream of time doth run and are enforced from our most quiet there by the rough torrent of occasion. This idea that, like, if you see that there is something wrong, if you see that there is something that needs to be addressed, if you recognize that it's your obligation to do something to prevent what you see or believe to be an unfavorable outcome or even in some cases an unfavorable end and something that i find is like unique to shakespeare is the willingness to to challenge those ideas and to ask those questions time and time again throughout his work in a way that there're not a whole lot of other playwrights the closest one that i can think of in the modern era in my knowledge is august wilson who does it to the same degree but just the the willingness to to really ask the question and again get people whether in the text or in the audience to think outside themselves and ask like what are you really made of what do you stand for what do you believe in and how how strong is that belief like how much are you willing to how much are you willing to risk how much are you willing to sacrifice how far out are you willing to place yourself on these convictions and say no this is me this is what i believe in and i'm willing to to show and prove for it oh, that's beautiful man well that's beautiful and we're at 753
0: so even though i've got literally eight more questions and we've got like six more in the chat that's so we have to leave it, friends. We can't uh, do a couple
1: more? We can't do a couple more?
0: Well, if we you do a couple go to patreon.com slash rude grooms <laughs> and uh, want to join us for the private post-show stream, we'll get all those questions out there for Daniel there. So yeah, we can do a couple more. Um, but before then, I want to thank you, Daniel, for being the first guest on what I'm sure will be a hit podcast, Revenge of the Sut. It's been a real honor to have you. Mm. Um, and uh, thank you all so much for tuning in out there. Daniel, if people want to keep in touch with you, where, where can they find you on those interwebs?
1: You can find me on the internet machine. I am at uh, Twitter and Instagram, both at the Daniel Kemper. It's just the and my first and last name. You can uh, talk to me about collaborating for future projects when we're all allowed to go outside again at my website, DanielKemperAx, a c t s. Com. Dude, I've seen and you in those then, happy hours. You don't need to go outside. They should hire you right now. That's where I was going next. And then you can see me in partnership with Rude Grooms and Seven Stages Shakespeare Company in Shakespeare Happy Hours every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on your computer screens at 5 p.m. Eastern. Do you have any, uh, any
0: recommendations for folks this week? Since you're on my podcast, I figure I'll let you... I'll let you give any recommendations if you have them. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That's, that's incredibly gracious of you. Yeah. Um, I actually cannot think of any recommendations this week, so I'm going to give a suggestion. Um, while we're all stuck inside uh, with quarantine, I know if you're like me, you're finding new ways to make sure you maintain contact with the people who are most important to you. Um, one of the things that my friends and I have started doing in recent weeks is we have tried to coordinate at least once a week, a night, once a week where we can all get together and have dinner. So just the, like the, the weird adaptive way that we have all, maintained human interaction with one another and all of this is we will set up a date and time. There will be a Zoom call or invite link. And there's a small group of us, maybe like six or seven of us who get together once a week and we have a meal together, albeit via computer screen. So I would suggest try to find a way, particularly if you if you live alone or you have a roommate and there are people that you haven't seen in person in a, like in a good long while, reach out to somebody and have a meal together this week.
0: That's beautiful, and I really want to thank you for all the invites that you've extended to me to those dinner parties. Just, <laughs> it, it fills my heart with joy every time you invite me as, as one <laughs> as one of my closest friends to know that I'm included in that small group. Really <laughs> fills my heart with 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 glee, and uh, uh, it's just so good for my for my mental health.
1: I mean, I send the invites to your Twitter link, Subtle Montgomery, and you never respond.
0: Don't tease me with t- Twitter messages. <laughs> Why are there messages on those platforms? We should have platforms for messaging and platforms for other things. It's too confusing to have 17 messaging platforms. I can't do Well it. Your,
1: your Twitter handle is Sutto Montgomery, right? Is that it? It's Sutton Montgomery. Uh well, see, so then somebody else has just been getting all of my... So there. <laughs>
0: this week, I'm going to recommend because... I am super lucky and also an insane person, and three live streams of Shakespeare aren't enough for me now. Of uh, not. So I'm super lucky to be joining uh, Circle in the Sand and the International Actors Ensemble and the Alex Theatre, which is based in Melbourne, Australia, for a project which is called Shakespeare's Age of Crowns. Uh, and it's bi weekly uh, readings of, the, of uncut versions of all the history plays. Uh, and I'm going to do Hotspur in Richard 2 and Henry 4 1. And then when we get around to the end, I'll be popping in as uh, good old Dickie G, who becomes that Richard 3, hmm. um, getting to do that through all all of the Henry 6s and Richard the Third. So that'll be, that starts this morning, uh, not this morning, oh God, I've been getting up earlier every day because with the time difference, that does mean that it's a 5 a.m. stream for those of us who are on the east coast of the U.S. Um, So you might want to watch the archival. Um, It's gonna be super fun, I'm really excited. The first one uh, will be this Monday and then every two weeks after that, you can go through that whole history cycle. Uh Shakespeare's Age of Crowns. It's on Facebook. It's on YouTube. Uh, I'll be sharing it on my page. And we'll share it on Wooden O and Rude Grooms as well. So that's my reco for the week. Um, my name is Montgomery Sutton. Thank you so much for watching The Revenge of the Sut. You can find me on Twitter at Montgomery Sutto. I really look forward to finally getting those dinner invites to my actual Twitter handle uh, or on Instagram <laughs> at Montgomery Sutton. Um, and yes, if you've not already, please do tune in for those Shakespeare happy hours. They're so much fun. Uh, Daniel and I <laughs> cut to do, I think, maybe the most ridiculous performance I've ever done. That was that yesterday. was a lot of fun. Yeah, I have, <laughs> no, I have no idea what happened or what we did, but it was shenaniganery.
1: I haven't watched it yet, but I imagine when I go back and rewatch it, it's going to be a whole lot of ridiculousness. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I asked Laura, I was like, uh, we, we were too much, right? We, we we were too much. And she was like,
1: you know, just like that much. <laughs> Especially because if you know Laura Piccoli, that is her way of saying like, yeah, y'all were doing too much. Right. Like, you know, just... Just a little, Just like yeah. that, much too much. It's like okay, all right. Note taken. And
0: friends, next week. Now that the truce has been drawn uh, between our kingdoms, uh, this was supposed to be the last episode of the season. But you know what? It's not going to be. Nope. Because summer shows are pushed back, or who knows what will happen. Yep. A Little more time on our hands. We're gonna we're gonna keep this going for a little bit. So. Yep. Uh, we'll be back here again next Saturday. More details to be sent to you soon. Um, but we will be here on Saturdays at seven. I'm loving this chat format. Um, thank you all so much for throwing the questions in. It honestly makes it so much more fun, uh, to play with y'all. So, so hope you keep coming back. Hope you keep throwing stuff
1: in. Daniel, anything you want to add? Uh, yeah just stay tuned make sure to follow me and Monty on all of the socials follow Rude Grooms and This Would Know on all of the socials for um, for updates and then you know come hang out with us again next Saturday night because I know for a fact you have time
0: so <laughs> you, all and of the then, gauntlets you have all the gauntlets man all
1: the gauntlets you gotta let I'm me just, some gauntlets one day I'm just out here challenging people to, you know, to live their best life and hang out with people who are giving them premium quality content. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of This Wooden O, hosted and produced by Daniel Kemper and Montgomery Sutton. Original music is by Cara Arena. This Wooden O is brought to you by Rude Grooms, a Queens, New York-based theater company creating epically intimate theatrical experiences in public spaces, non-traditional venues, and new media. Learn more at RudeGrooms.com or follow us on social media at Rude Grooms and at This Wooden O.